Our chains are gone, are they not? Chains of sin, gone. Do we live in the light of that freedom? Or have we deceived ourselves into thinking, well, you know, it's just the way I am. I'm going to be battling this the rest of my life. I cannot get, I can overcome this. No, we can. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us freedom. But it cost you your life to do so. When you were on the cross, you cried out, it is finished. Paid in full. Our sin debt is paid in full. And because of that, we can live in freedom. Your spirit has come to live inside every one of us who have repented of our sins and have embraced the gospel. Lord, you live. You're in charge. You're our Lord over all. Salvation comes through you. Help us, Lord, to live that way. And we ask now, Lord, as we open up this passage of Scripture, familiar words with much of it, a lot of background, a lot of culture that we need to take in as we more appreciate this. So, Lord, we're asking that your spirit will help us. Open up our eyes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the main reasons that the church of Jesus Christ comes together on Sunday mornings is to observe the Lord's Supper. This one event, more than any other, showcases evangelism and a unity together. Now, there's a vertical relationship, a vertical component of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus said, eat this bread, drink from this cup, do this to remember me. But over the years, we have, as a church, over thousands of years, we've ins- we have institutionalized this ritual. Now, many groups of people have some strange understandings of the Lord's Supper. Some, for example, believe that the elements actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus. After all, Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. But we at Grace Unitas see that Jesus said what he said that was a figure of speech. See, what he said, this is my body, this is my blood, we don't think that the elements actually turned into Jesus. See, Christ right now is exalted at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And so he doesn't appear here. When we come and we have communion, we have the Lord's Supper, we are doing what Jesus told us to do. He said, remember me, remember me. Well, that's the vertical part of the Lord's Supper. But there is a significant part of the Lord's Supper that we tend to gloss over. And this is what I call the horizontal component of the Lord's Supper, of the observance. It is wrapped up in another word that we use when we talk about about this event. It's called communion. And this word literally means the condition of union. And so today we're going to dive into this horizontal aspect of the Lord's Supper. Now, why would we want to do this? See, Jesus said to remember, but why would we want to dive into the horizontal aspect? Because it primarily is what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians 11, our passage for today, as he tried to, as he explained it to uh, the Corinthians. But now, you know, the Word of God is is amazingly contemporary. Would you agree with that? 
And I continue to be amazed at how the timeless pastoral advice, perspective, and authority of 1 Corinthians has in how it's informed us how we can live our lives in 2020. Remember, several weeks, we talked about Paul's counsel regarding you know, food sacrifice to idols and how we've applied that to all things COVID. Remember that series that we had, sort of. Now we, and we discovered that God's truth for us is that what we individually believe about the COVID-19 virus is irrelevant when it comes to us individually. What God cares most about is how we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, treat one another in the midst of this issue, regardless of our differences about COVID-19. And like so many times in this letter, Paul hits disunity from many, many different angles. Unity was huge with Paul and it was huge with Jesus as well. Because let's never forget what Jesus prayed for the night before he went to the cross. Though he never experienced all the horror and hellishness that he was going to experience the following day. What was uppermost in his mind in his prayer to his father was not his suffering, though there was a lot there. What was uppermost in the mind and heart of our Lord was the unity of his people, the church, down through the ages. Here again, for the first time, Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John 17. In verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them, the 11 disciples, in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verses 20 to 23, we hear him praying for his disciples from day one, from the first day until now, and that includes all of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior. He says, I do not ask for these only, as in the 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? So that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, unified, so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. What an amazing prayer that is. But as we know, there's a whole lot more going on in the world than just COVID-19. Would you agree? <laughs> there's also this issue of racism, which has raised its ugly head again. Only this time it has taken on a much more violent tone. Now, that's probably the understatement of the year, would you think? And like COVID, though, the racism issue has a lot of info swirling around it. False and true and all those things. Now, we're going to weigh in on this issue as we seek to apply 1 Corinthians 11 later on in the, in the message at the end. See, I'm convinced, though, that there are few passages in Scripture that, that can be applied directly to this issue of racism than this passage that we're going to look at today, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. But now remember uh, what we're doing in our series. Two weeks ago, we, we began our mini-series about how to approach God corporately, all of us together, in a way that would please Him. See, as we saw in Isaiah, there were times that God 
actually rejected the offerings of worship from his own people. He said in Isaiah 1, things like this, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your appointed feasts, my soul hates. This is God talking here. He's talking to his people. He says, I will not listen to your prayers, even if you make many of them. But I do find it fascinating, though, how God tells his people that he will accept their worship when they repent of their sins of injustice and oppression. Here's what he says in Isaiah 1.17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Well, two weeks ago, God through Paul told the Corinthians and us by extension that women and men are different. Well, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? And though we're all made in God's image, he commands women and men to pray in different ways, to minister in different ways. Women are to pray or prophesy with their head covered in corporate worship. And men are to pray or prophesy with their heads uncovered. Now, we look at that and we think, okay, I can apply this legalistically or whatever. But remember, we introduced a whole lot of cultural concepts last time to help us to more fully understand this. But now the Corinthians, they understood because they took for granted what was in their culture. You know, we didn't because, you know, we're 2,000 years removed from what Paul wrote and what the Corinthians understood. Remember how Paul commended them for remembering the traditions that he introduced them to, like, you know, men and women need to do things differently in the church, the corporate worship. Paul was finally happy there because he commended them. He was saying, hey, listen, you guys are doing good. And when it comes to the way that you worship and observe the God-given distinctions that he gave men and women in the way that we are to worship. And of course, last week for Father's Day, Greg preached a powerful message. And I just want to you know, praise the Lord for, for my brother, what he did and how he preached and what God laid on his heart. Very powerful words last week. But today we continue to deal, to deal with the worshiping of the Lord in a way that he will accept. The corporate worship where we all come together. Will the Lord accept our worship? Well, I believe that in 1 Corinthians here, he lays out a blueprint how we can do this, how he will accept our worship, specifically about the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm sure that you cannot miss something right in front of me. It's probably been pretty distracting to you. There's a lot of dirty dishes right here. And I hope that you will see how all this comes together as we go through uh, our, our time today. Because this has to do with a lot of the culture, is what we're going to talk about concerning the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, I want you to do something very easy, super easy. I want you to forget a lot of what you've learned over the years about the Lord's Supper. Okay? Pretty easy to do. Just forget it. But I'm afraid that we, myself included, have attached a whole lot of baggage to the Lord's Supper. This most incredible event that showcases, again, evangelism and unity. And this baggage that we've attached has been on the spiritual level, on the vertical level. But as I mentioned earlier, there's another level, the horizontal level that we're going to be talking about today, and that is the social level level of brothers and sisters partaking in the Lord's Supper. 
So what we want to do today is to simply read through the passage, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. So if you don't have your Bible out yet, go ahead and get that out. And then I want to make a few comments along the way to kind of give a little bit of, of clarity here. Then I want to give the backstory, the, the cultural background, then, and try to seek to tie it together. And then finally, I want to seek to apply the truth that we learned today to this issue of racism. You might find it surprising, but I found it amazing as I went and studied this, prepared. So let's read 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats, drink, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Very familiar passage of Scripture in a lot of cases, right? We repeat some of these words every time we observe the Lord's Supper. Here, it's every fifth Sunday, or it's becoming more regular. It's kind of cool. I like it. And again, we're going to do that today. Now, we examine our lives while we wait for the elements to come to us. Some of us confess our sins. Some of us who are harboring sin in our lives as Christians, we had to let the elements pass because we take seriously Jesus' words here. We eat the bread or gluten-free crackers, whichever. We drink the cup, and now we fiddle with the opening so that we don't spill the juice, right? And another experience of the Lord's table is complete. We close the service, and we go home. But there is a cultural backstory that we need to appreciate right here when we talk about the Lord's table. So let me attempt to give it. 
first, Paul does not commend them for the way that they observe the Lord's table. He brings up the issue of, quote, necessary factions among them. This is an ironic statement. This is not a truth statement, so to speak. This is not an issue of doctrine. This is an, uh, this is an irony that Paul is doing here. Here Paul points out their insistence that the Corinthian believers still hold on to the cultural memes of the day, that the presence of divisions, in this case it is social class distinctions, somehow proves those who are genuine. But remember how Paul chided them of their disunity, kind of like leaders will rise to the top. That's the idea here is what Paul is addressing. So in this showcase event of their time together, the Lord's Supper, Paul once again chides them. And now picture the cultural background with me. The vast majority of the churches that were held back in the day were held in homes, usually large homes. Their Sunday worship was pretty informal, as you can see the dishes. And they always included a meal, always. You know, we have Fifth Sunday Fellowships. They always included a meal with the, in, their, in their worship times. Now, sometime during the meal, the Lord's table was actually observed. Sometimes it was before the meal. Sometimes it was in the middle. Sometimes it was afterwards. It just depended. They were very informal in their worship. A picture also that the Corinthians in the city as a whole, they considered Sunday truly as just another day. You know, today, we, you know, we've, some of the places are closed on Sundays, things like that. You're off usually, but not there. It truly was just another day. Now, many were jobs, but some were of the upper crust, and they had a little bit more time on their hands, and so they were able to just kind of hang around. Now, the ones with a lot of time on their hands were often the owners of the houses that the churches met in. Make sense so far? Now, every house is pretty standard, and it included, among other things, a dining room. Now, the dining room was, was kind of a small place. It held about 10 people. There were cushions there and a small table, and so about 10 people could fit into the dining room. But now there are other, were, other rooms and even a courtyard in most houses where everybody else would gather and get together. And during their meal, the owner of the house ate in the dining room, of course, along with a lot, several of his other close friends in the church, usually the ones that also had a lot of time on their hands. Because when they got together and they started the festivities, they were, when they started, it was because they were there. Okay? But the other members of the congregation, about 40 to 50 or even sometimes more, they came when they could. Remember, they had jobs. And when the meal was served, the meal was served, whether everybody was there or not. Remember what I said about the Lord's Supper being observed? It depended on, on the host whenever they wanted to observe the Lord's Supper. And so those who were there when the meal was served and the Lord's Supper was observed, they partook. They ate the meal and they also observed the Lord's Supper. Those who arrived late, for whatever reason, were able to eat what was left. If there was anything left, and this included the elements of the Lord's Supper. Such was the life of close fellowship of the Corinthian Christians. Now, upon hearing this report of how the meals and the Lord's Supper was handled, Paul corrects them sharply. 
in the midst of class distinctions of the haves and the have-nots, Paul reminds them of exactly what the Lord said and did when they observed the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says, I give you this bread. Remember me when I am crucified for you tomorrow. I give you this cup. Remember me when I shed my blood for you tomorrow. And Paul told them in no uncertain terms, brothers, sisters, you've bought into the cultural meme of the day that says that class distinctions are the norm. Stop it. You claim to worship the Lord who gave himself for your sins. Some of you see yourselves as better than others in the church. But Jesus died for all of you, Paul continues, even Peter, who denied him. But you guys don't consider yourselves as equals, unified around Jesus. Watch out, Corinthians. When you observe the Lord's table, examine yourselves. Make sure that you consider yourself on level ground around the cross of Jesus along with everybody else. See, Corinthians, when you devour your own dinner, you fail to treat every person in the congregation as your equal, and you dishonor them. You dishonor the one who doesn't have anything to eat. You declare him or her as less than you, and Jesus is not pleased. He gave his life for all of you, symbolized by his bread, symbolized by the cup. He wants you to share your food with everybody equally. Because you don't do this, some of you have experienced the Lord's judgment. He's actually allowed death to come to some of your congregations. So my brothers and sisters, wait until everybody gets there before you eat. Pretty common sense, isn't it? But that's not what they did. Make sure everybody can participate in the Lord's table. If you can't keep from showing off your upper-classness, eat at home before you come to worship. And by the way, I'll take care of the other matters when I get there. Sound like the typical Sunday morning worship service? Me neither. (laughs) I don't think so. But that was reality in the first century church in Corinth. Remember, church buildings did not exist for a couple hundred years after Jesus went back to heaven. But what if Paul were to somehow come here? He would arise from the dead and come here and witness what we would do on fifth Sundays at Grace United? How would he handle? What would he say about us when it comes to the communion time? We observe the Lord's Supper before our meal. That's our custom. We wait for one another. We give everybody an opportunity to remember what the Lord has done for all of us. All of us are on equal footing around the cross of Jesus, whether we're well off or in poverty, regardless of what job we have or not, whether we are laid off or whether we retired, whether we are healthy or we hobble to get here. All of us are valued and loved by our Lord, and we demonstrate our value to one another regarding the Lord's Supper by waiting for one another. That's why we all wait to eat all the elements together. Well, what about the Fifth Sunday Fellowship meal? Huh? What would Paul say about it? I think he would commend us there as well. As you know, if you leave one of our Fifth Sunday Fellowship dinners hungry, guess what? It's your fault. We have enough, don't we? And the vast majority of time, what happens? People take extra food home. Good stuff. And by the way, 
If you thought in the past that you can't come because you have nothing to contribute, forget about that. Come. We have enough. In short, I think Paul would say, good job to us. I think he would be pleased with the way that we are handling the Fifth Sunday Fellowship. I think the way that we are handling communion. I think Paul would say, yes, good job, good on you, as he would with many other churches. And by the way, I just want to say how much I do look forward. I can't wait till we get to the next one. The next one is what, coming up at the end of what, July or something like that? Hopefully we'll be all able to eat together and maybe we'll have a baptism or two. I don't know, but we'll see. And, you know, because when we do this, we get across from somebody, and it's nothing like a plate of good food to open up conversation, to enhance deeper fellowship with one another. We get to know each other better, better, and the Lord is pleased with this. So that's great stuff. So what can we take from today's message? What can we make of it? Let me offer several application points, especially when it comes to the current iteration of racism. As I mentioned, the current conversation is a lot more militant now, and it's getting violent in some places. In this passage, we look through a small window in the first century that showed class distinctions. Discrimination was there too. Now, there's discrimination here in our day, just like it was in their day. The only difference is manifestation. Now, in the first century... It was strictly economic discrimination. In their day, so much more honor was given to those in the upper class, you know, with power and wealth and those things. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's the difference between then and now? (laughs) There's all kinds of people with all kinds of power and wealth, and we give them a whole lot of, you know, prestige and a whole lot of kudos and things like that. But the main difference is the honor-shame culture that they lived in. Remember, you would rather die than to be dishonored. That's how seriously they took that culture back then. So let's turn the corner now and apply some of what we learned here in the racism struggle that is going on right now. Now, I'm a white guy. I understand that. But I think there's some things that the Lord can share with us. And I think there's some things that I've observed and I hope that I've done it right. And so if I've done it wrong, let me know. I've been wrong at least once in my life. But the first application point is this. Unlike like the Corinthians, they were living the cultural meme of the day. As Christians, we are not to live the cultural meme of the day. We don't bring the world's culture into the church. Today's cultural meme says that the church is guilty of the sin of racism. I said the church because it did not speak up when slavery was in full swing. That's the meme. The church, so the saying goes, used the Bible to justify slavery. And many of us in the church today, both white and black, have bought the cultural meme and point the finger at white Christians. As a result, many white Christians are trying to make amends for the sins of their ancestors. Am I right so far? Now, there's a deep division, and we know this, between human black brothers and white brothers and sisters. There's a deep division around, maybe even some places in the world. And there's even some division among black and white brothers and sisters in the church. And Satan, the real enemy, the one who seeks to kill and steal and destroy, laughs at us because of it. But racism or any sin 
is not to be laid at the doorstep of the church. The church of Jesus Christ is not the issue. However, there are those who call themselves Christians who have influence and they twist the scripture to their own ends. And the truth is that so-called Christians are the problem, not the church itself. Remember how Paul dealt with a church member in an incestual relationship earlier in this letter, 1 Corinthians 5, right? 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Get that person out of the church is what he's saying here. Now, are there some who have claimed to be Christians who have twisted Scripture to justify slavery in the past? Yes. Tragically, yes. But what does God call them? False converts. False teachers as well. See, down through the ages, the way Christianity worked, the way the church used to work until very recently... When a, when a person claimed to be a Christian, he can believe the right things. He also and she also had to act and also had to live that out as well. If the person believed something, but their lives were a contradiction, guess what they were referred to? False converts. But hear me well, though. I'm not saying that a Christian is to be perfect. We're not talking about perfection here. But what I am saying is that if a Christian's way of life contradicts what they say they believe, that person, by God's definition, is a false convert or a false teacher. So the church and the world are different. Did you know that? The culture of the world is wicked. Did you know that? And the church is supposed to make an impact on it. This is not always done well. We know this. But their church is not the cause of the world's ills, especially the sin of racism. Sin in the human heart is the cause of racism. And the human heart is capable of any sin to include justifying one's own behavior by perverting the Word of God. If anything, this present iteration of racism only highlights the truth of God's Word in Jeremiah 17, 9, when he says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? But speaking of Scripture... Why did God give it to us? Why did God give us his word? For God's people to understand and apply God's ways. It was not given to the world to fix their problems. Now, we know the issue of justice, though, is a biblical issue. It says that over and over again in the Old Testament, right? And Dr. Martin Luther King, as a Christian, tried to apply Scripture to civil rights. And he led the movement that has seen great strides toward the healing of blacks and whites. But what happens when when people who are dead in their sins take the Bible and try to use the divine wisdom to heal the ills of our country? Very little result happens. Why? Because this is divine wisdom. God's power needs to do this. People dead can't do it. But now, don't misunderstand, though. Should behavior be regulated? Absolutely. Police who murder those who they are trying to protect should be prosecuted to the fullest extent. We know this. Prosecution ought to be applied as well to those who break the other nine of the Ten Commandments, too, right? 
However, how many of them are broken every day and the lawbreakers go unpunished? Selective outrage, anyone? Strangely, though, there are some church leaders who seem to think that even wicked people living in rebellion against God have a tender heart when it comes to things like justice and mercy. I actually heard, I read an article where this one well-known pastor said this about the human heart. He said, I'm reminded in, in Micah 6, 8, that this instinct for justice, this longing for justice and longing for mercy is built into our hearts by God. We're hardwired to have it. I beg to differ with this pastor because here's what Micah 6, 8 says. See, he says, this is justice and mercy are foreign to our hearts. Here's how it reads. He has told you, God has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. See, if justice and mercy were naturally built into our hearts, why would God see the need to have us tell us about it? Doesn't. He wouldn't, he wouldn't need that to, to tell us. See, the Lord has given these things to us as his people, as his gifts, because we're his people. As I mentioned, our hearts naturally are wicked. We don't have a longing for justice or for mercy when things happen to us. Is that true? What do we want? We want revenge. We want payback. We don't want justice. We don't want mercy. We want payback. So the first application point is that the world and the church are different. The world is evil, and the church that we and we are in it are holy. We are separated unto God. Second application point is that we are not called to be the world's moral police. God has not called us to fix the world. He, we are called to be a witness to the world and paint for them a living picture, a living portrait of what living under God's rule is like. I've referred to a book called Endangered Gospel. I've, I've recommended it to, to several of you over the years. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. And the subtitle is called How Fixing the World is Killing the Church. The author, he says, emphasizes throughout that we spend so much time on trying to make the world a better place that we've neglected or outright denied the reason why the church exists, why God did not immediately take us home after we got saved. See, as we've said so often, the Lord has called the church, disciples of Jesus, to do three things, and three things only. We're to evangelize the lost. We're to disciple the saved. We're to live together in love and unity. That's it. That's all we are called to do by our Lord. Now, getting involved in important things, like as a godly person running for office, that's a good thing or tearing down the abortion industry. That's a good thing as well. But as Nugent says, it is not kingdom work. Now, these good things may help make the world a better place. But again, the Lord has not called his bride to make the world better. He has called us as his bride to give testimony to the bridegroom who will return to rescue us one day and make everything all right. The culture is evil. And the church is holy. We're not called to fix the world, but to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. 
The third application point is that the church of Jesus must deal with discrimination within the church and not the wider society. The primary reason for this is because there is no cure for racism to be found in the culture, just like there's no cure for any sin to be found in the culture. Would you agree with that? In the first century church, discrimination was present. James, second chapter, talks about this very issue. He says, basically, there are two guys walking into your congregation, and one guy's very well-dressed, another guy is not, and you treat this person with, with respect and, 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 and you give him special treatment, guess what you're doing? You're committing discrimination, and you are sinning. And, and, and so he, he talks about how, the, how heinous and how wicked that really is. The point is, any kind of discrimination in the church, James says, is sin. In truth, discrimination has always been with us in some way, shape, or form since the earliest days of the church. Their first century economic discrimination is our 21st century racism. And what I'm about to say may offend some, but we need to talk about this. If our current iteration of racism is about blacks killing black, being killed, what about black-on-black crime? We can talk all day about the reasons why, but there's a lot of black-on-black crime. Isn't that true? A lot of white-on-white crime, too. There's also police brutality in the culture. Are we, are we to condone what a few wicked image-bearers of God working on the police force have done to other image-bearers of God? Not at all. Not at all. On the other hand, are we to condemn all police for a few? Absolutely not. My point here is, regardless of one shade of melanin, killing is wrong. Killing is killing, and that's bad. The desire to have someone else die at someone else's hands is wicked. It comes from a wicked heart, regardless of who you are. Is there a cure for racism in our culture? No. Just like there's no cure for abortion or corruption in government in our culture. The human heart, specifically an unregenerated human heart, is the place where this resides. Again, it is desperately sick, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? No amount of reparations will make up for the pain for chattel slavery of one group of people put upon another. And let's not forget that people from all walks of life owned other people. Caucasians owned blacks, blacks owned blacks, and down through the century, everybody has owned somebody. Now, I'm convinced that so much of our guilty, uh, that we are guilty of selective outrage. If it was strictly a matter of people enslaving others, where is the outrage about those who of all skin tones are now enslaved? There are more slaves now than ever before in our, in our world and largely over the sexual slave trafficking. And what about the entire industry called Planned Parenthood, established by Margaret Sanger, who made it her goal to get rid of those who were darker shade of melanin? And by the way, where are most Planned Parenthood clinics? Inner city. The only cure for racism in the church is to be found in forgiveness, where one brother sins against another brother, and forgiveness needs to happen. See, only in Christ can we find forgiveness from God and the power to forgive others who have wronged us. 
The truth is, how many of us have not been wronged by somebody else? Anybody? Not true? We've all been wronged. We've all been hurt by other people, have we not? Can there be any full payment for that? Can there be any full payment done for someone for the damage that you've inflicted upon their lives? Can you repay that fully? No one. We cannot. A broken heart is impossible to put back together once it's broken. I'm reminded of a radio preacher I heard the other day. He talked about Joseph in the Old Testament and his ability to forgive his brothers. In the course of his message, he said something like this. He said, Joseph forgave his brothers. That is true. But you and I will never be as evil to people as we are to God. And God offers us forgiveness of sins in Christ. There is not a cure for racism in our culture. But there is a cure for sin. Is that not right? It is found in the person and work of Christ. Only in Christ can we be changed from people with selfish dispositions and murderous attitudes to that of giving ourselves to others. Instead of killing others, Christians have the power and privilege to die to ourselves. My brothers and sisters, salvation in Christ is the only place where the cure for racism is to be found. So what do we do? First of all, we believe what God says about us, who we are, about every person on the planet. We're all equal. As the saying goes, everyone puts their pants on the same way, right? One leg at a time. There's not one person better than another. This must be the conviction of every Christian for everybody in our world, regardless of skin tone, nationality, or even lifestyle. All are equal. All are worthy of respect and dignity. Second, as Christians, we stand before God as individuals and as part of the body of Christ. There are no haves and have-nots when it comes to uh, ourselves as members. Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that, that there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slaver, free, but Christ is all in all. Third, the gospel is the only avenue of racial reconciliation in our world. And that is the only thing that can be in any culture. So the challenge of the church is not how can we form together with secular organizations. But the challenge of the church is that we need to live out unity and racial reconciliation within the church. And lastly, we have to have the courage to call out people who try to twist Scripture and make it say what it's not saying. Again, why was Scripture written? It was written so that God's people could glorify Him and edify one another. It was never given as a blueprint to fix the world. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's keep in mind both the vertical part, Christ gave himself for us, and the horizontal part, unity among us. So let's prepare our hearts. Let's prepare our minds as we partake of the elements. We're going to pass the elements out, wait for one another, and after Right before we partake of the elements, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. So...
Let me pass the elements. And again, go ahead and take, take the baggie. Again, this is the Lord's table. If you're not a Christian, you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I ask that you allow the elements to pass by you. Make sure that your heart is right with the Lord. If you're harboring sin in your life and you don't want to give it up, please let the elements pass by as well. Well, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. On the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, took a piece of bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples. He said, take this and eat this. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. In the same way, after supper, the Lord Jesus took a cup, had wine in it. He said, take this, all of you, and drink it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take this, do this. Whenever you do it, remembrance of me. And Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. We're going together. Father, we thank you for the elements that represent your son, our Savior, his broken body, his shed blood. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for his present intercession for us. We thank you for his soon return. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in readiness. Live our lives in gratitude for what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us the way that you've done. For crying out on the cross, it's finished. Our sin debt is paid in full. We are now free. Help us to live as freed people. And we'll give you thanks. I pray now, Father, as we go to our giving as well and we finish out the service, that you will bless us, that we might be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.